and the mark of the beast. I think you'll find it uh, informative tomorrow evening as we uh, take a look at that subject and um, <clears throat> maybe try to shed a little light on those things. We'll be in the book of Daniel uh, tonight and uh, <clears throat> make sure our clicker is working here. <clears throat> oh, look at there. He's got us going right off the bat. Amen. And uh, several of you have asked some questions about science and um, we do have a series, I think I've got one or two left on the table back there, of the week of creation. I've been involved in science and the Bible creation research for about 35 years. And uh, there's a series on about four and a half hours of teaching on the week of creation. And then the fourth disc in there is uh, the flood of Noah, the how was the ark built, those kind of things. And then... What is the mechanism for the millennial reign? And I think you'll find that those helpful and interesting. And <clears throat> trust you'll pray for our ministry. I'll tell you a little bit more tomorrow night uh, about uh, some of our ministry. Of course, we, uh, uh, we have the, uh, uh, the television program. Some of you have been asking, you, you're looking, it's CTN, Christian Television Network. Uh, that's the major one we're on. They cover 85% of the world. And uh, as long as the Lord provides financially, we'll stay on there. Um, it's getting more expensive all the time as they, uh, our introductory rate ran out quite a while ago. And uh, it's, uh, Lord's keeping us on there. That's all that matters. Amen. And we want to be a blessing uh, as best we can. On the table, there's also uh, uh, some of the messages. This one's called How Late the Hour. It's out of the 21st chapter uh, of the book of Luke in the Olivet Discourse. And five things the Lord gives us signs there. And I point those out and help us to see the hours later than we might think. And uh, then there's one called 10 events before the second coming. There are 10 specific things that must take place before the second coming. Nothing has to take place before the rapture. But there are some things that will happen prophetically before the Lord comes back second time. And we put those in order for you. Uh, then we, last evening we looked at the Middle East conflict. And we have a, a book back there called Jerusalem, A Cup of Trembling. And uh, it's uh, some of what we covered last evening, along with uh, some of the other events that took place, World War I, World War II, and how Jewish scientists uh, in their research led to providing, uh, first of all, the weaponizing of maize uh, in a dynamite form for World War I. Uh, which ended that war, and then the second war was ended because of the atomic bomb, and all of that was a result of the research of other Israeli scientists, and how that each of those uh, was a part of chapter 37 of the book of, uh, of uh, Ezekiel uh, taking place, and I think you'll help. And then there's one back there that I think you would enjoy. Um, it would help you with your children, with your family, it's called the power uh, of our words on a molecule of water. And I show you how the vibrations or the frequencies of our voices 
literally have an impact on the molecule of water and they, every molecule responds to frequency one way or another. And uh, uh, you find pictures in there of some of the things that your effects can have. The whole purpose is to help you understand, number one, your words do have an effect on people. And secondly, it'll help you understand if our words can do this to a molecule of water. It wasn't too difficult for the voice of God to speak to the molecules of water that he brought into existence on day number one and bring about the creation in which we enjoy today. If you found chapter one of the book of Daniel, would you stand for the reading of scripture? And uh, <clears throat> want tonight uh, to take a a look at uh, some end time uh, prophecies and we're going to be looking through the book of Daniel. Uh, we'll call it an overview of Daniel, but we will spend probably half of our time at the latter part dealing with just one of the chapters. Chapter 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, under his hand, with parts of the vessel of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, uh, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of God. Look up a moment. You see, in those days, they, they thought if we defeated you on the battlefield, that meant my God is greater than your God. So they're bringing some of the things from the house of Almighty God uh, into captivity into the house there. And so that's what his idea was. Verse 3, And the king spake to Asphineas, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Well, notice these are royalty uh, that he's bringing back. Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace in whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. So that means Daniel is one of these. They, they have to pass some tests in order to even be qualified to take an end to captivity. Notice verse 5. And the king appointed them a daily portion of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. So nourishing them three years uh, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. So they're going to enter a three-year college program and at the end of it they got to pass their test in front of the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Sometime in your study, look at those names and realize that each of those names are attached to an attribute of Almighty God. Every one of their names is attached to an attribute of Elohim, God Almighty. Unto whom, verse 7, the princes of the eunuch gave names. And he gave to Daniel the name of Melteshazzar and a Hananiah of Shadrach, and a Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. You know what he did? He gave them all a name attached to one of the false gods of the Chaldean world. How would you like your name changed? From knowing the God of Israel 
to now you're identified with a false god. Pretty tough situation. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Father, I pray you'll bless our time together. We thank you uh, for the songs that we sang tonight and the words and the messages there. Thank you for the blood you shed on Calvary's cross. Wow. God, I pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I yield to you, please. Guide my thoughts that I'll say what needs to be said tonight for this church, uh, for this occasion. And Lord, I pray tonight you'd give all of us eyes spiritually to see and ears to hear, hearts that are open and receptive. God, help us to have teachable spirit tonight. And God, may we see your wonderful hand and what you did in the life of Daniel and how you gave to Daniel the plan that we'll look at tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to share with you tonight uh, an overview of the book of Daniel. And I want you to understand it is an overview. It is not an in-depth study. <laughs> uh, to have an in-depth study, we'd have to spend a whole lot more time than the time we're going to spend tonight. But we'll just look at some things together uh, concerning the book of Daniel. An overview of Daniel and the prophecies concerning Israel and the Gentile nations that uh, are inferred in the life of Israel. In other words, anybody that has ever had any interference in the life of uh, Israel, many of the prophecies in the Old Testament have to do with Gentile nations. But it's because those Gentile nations have either had or will have some involvement in the life of Israel. Many of them uh, are going to receive great judgment because of the great things they brought against Israel. And so uh, uh, when you're studying prophecy, you always need to remember it is about Israel. And uh, now, why is it about Israel and not the church? You know, everybody wants some signs. Oh, when's the rapture? Hey, the, you need to live expecting the rapture any moment. The whole purpose for it being imminent is to keep you on your toes and right with God because at any moment the trumpet could sound, you're out of here, and you're going to stand before the Lord with the record you bring that day. Now, the, let me help you understand the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of sin. The judgment seat of Christ is an awards ceremony. It's where your life is evaluated. The things of materialism, the things of this world will be melted away, burned away, the wood, hay, and stubble. The things that you've done spiritually for Christ, uh, the gold and silver and precious stone, all they do as a result of fire is become more pure and valuable. And so that's the picture. What remains from the judgment of your life lived from the time you got saved is become your reward for eternity. But as you see, those rewards are for a purpose. The rewards are for the purpose of being converted into your responsibilities. During the millennial reign and beyond in the new heaven and new earth, you will continue to rule and reign, and your level of responsibility is in direct relationship to the rewards you have at the judgment seat of Christ. You say, well, you want a lot? I want as many rewards as I can get. Absolutely. 
I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend eternity just dabbling my feet in the brook of heaven. I want to be busy. Amen? And so keep that in mind. But it's not about the church. It's about Israel. The church is living in anticipation of, of seeing our Savior, meeting Him in the air, to meet the Lord in the air, to ever be with Him, and uh, then that judgment seat of Christ. And it's imminent. And signs of the end times are all concerning Israel. And they are looking for the Antichrist. I'm not looking for the Antichrist preacher. I'm looking for the Christ. Amen. Now, if you believe in mid-tribulation rapture, go ahead. That's your responsibility. Uh, you can do that, but you'll be surprised whenever you are caught up with us. Amen. But I'm here to tell you, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. You see, if you believe in the mid-tribulation or the pre-wrath kind or, the, or, or whatever, or post or whatever you want to believe in, I'm here to tell you, you're looking for an Antichrist. Israel is the one looking for an Antichrist. We'll see that again here in a few moments. And so uh, we're looking for that. The signs are always for the Jews. Uh, the Greeks, uh, the Gentiles are searching after wisdom. As I said the other day, I think it was Sunday, God's speaking to the Jews through signs. I don't think he'll hold it against us if we eavesdrop on him talking to them. Amen. And so it helps us understand how, how I believe how close we might be. Uh, here is a chart and uh, I, we don't have time to walk through it. This is a, a one that I've put together and uh, uh, it's fully animated for just a single teaching time. But this is the kingdoms that are involved. And so we're going to look at the life of Daniel, which Daniel's life encompasses this right here. And it's in that we're going to discover some things together. The book of, uh, of Daniel and its chapters are not, they're like your Bible. Your Bible is not in sequential order of time by its books. Neither are the chapters in the book of Daniel in sequential order of time. In other words, you don't go to one and then the next and the next because what you'll find is that chapters nine, 6 and 9 actually fit over the top of all of this because you have inserted a couple of stories in chapter 5 and 6 uh, that uh, actually take place way over in the end of Daniel's life. All of these charts will be given to your pastor when it's over. And uh, uh, you're probably thinking, I wonder when it's going to be over. Well, uh, tomorrow night we'll be over. Amen. Amen. And so uh, it, it was in 722 B.C. when verse number one takes place. We just read about it. And uh, uh, the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity. And 116 years later, the verse we just read takes place. You would have thought... 116 years before, we watched the northern kingdom go into captivity, just like all the prophets said would happen if they didn't get themselves straight with God. You'd think the southern kingdom would learn. Well, wait a minute. Did you learn from anybody else's mistakes? No, we always learn. You know, I learned something long ago raising my children, preacher. I can't teach them my lessons. I can explain to them my lessons and I can explain to them the consequences, but they have to learn from their own lessons. And uh, so, uh, uh, so they are going into captivity. And uh, chapter 2, Daniel and his three cousins that we just read about, all are of the king's seed. <clears throat> they go into a three-year training program 
And Daniel is probably about 17 years old. News comes about a year into the school. The king had a dream last night and he's really upset. In chapter number two, you read the story. He's, he's had this dream and wakes up and he's all troubled by it and then he can't remember exactly what it was. So he brings all the soothsayers and the astrologers and all the palm readers and all the tea leaf readers and all the rest of the wise grow. And finally they got the idea, hey, king, tell us what the dream is and we'll tell you what it means. He finally realized, wait a minute, if you can't tell me what the dream was, how do I know I can trust you to tell me what it meant? He said, what I'm going to do, here's the date set. If I don't get an answer by the date set, the guards are going to come through and whack everybody's head off. Well, it wasn't long until news filtered down into the school. <laughs> because Daniel and his three cousins are in the school of preparation under the training for this system. That meant they might get their heads cut off. So Daniel says... As a Swayus, who was overseer of them, get me an audience with the king. We're talking about a boy who's not yet 19. That takes a lot of courage. He'd already proved that, that God could do whatever it ought to be in order for him to stay right because he'd already refused the king's meat. That was step number one of building his faith on his own. Even though he comes from a lineage of wicked kingship, it is obvious that somebody has done a good job in properly training Daniel and his three, his three cousins. Because they know we can trust God. We'd rather die right now than defile ourselves with the wicked things of the old king. So he's already proven, and, and you young people here need to understand, you don't wait until you get older to start serving God. You start serving God where you are right now at the level you are. And that's what happened. And so now he's about 19, and, and he's going to stand by himself before the king. And he says, King, would you give us a few days? Because in a few days, my... Cousins and I, this, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, we're going to beseech our God. Well, you know the story in chapter number two. God reveals the dream to Daniel. Not only does he reveal the dream to Daniel, but he reveals what it meant. So he goes before the king and he tells the king the story. You saw this image. And uh, he said, Thou king sawest, and behold, a great image. Uh, this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Uh, this, image, uh, uh, this image's head uh, was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet of, part of, iron, uh, of iron and part of clay. Uh, thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, uh, which smote the image on his feet that were of the iron and clay and break them to pieces. He said, here's what you saw, king. You saw... 
all of the Gentile rule all the way to the millennial reign of Christ. He said, King, you're the head of gold. This is why Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot tall image of himself and overlaid it with gold. You're the head of gold. Of course, we understand because we have the ability to look back through history and understand. But when this is given, Daniel has no idea what it is all about other than this is what God has given to him. We now have the ability to look back and see how all of it folded out, fell, uh, worked its way out. And so uh, you have the Babylonian kingdom, which was followed by the Medes and Persians. You have the Medes and the Persians. You got the two arms. Uh, and then you have uh, Greece. And then you have the Roman Empire. And then you have what we call today, I believe, personally, it's the European Union. It's trying to put itself back together again. The words that are used in the following verses, and we won't take time to read them, but it talks about being partly iron and partly clay, the toes. The word clay there is the word that means fire brick. In other words, like you have a cup that's clay. That clay cup has been molded and formed into the cup of shape of a clay, and then once it's put into the fire and in the kiln, it becomes hard clay or a glass. What happens if you drop your cup? It may break into pieces. And so what you're watching is the European Union trying to put itself back together again. These are already nations that have already existed. Now they're trying to amalgamate themselves back together again. But because in the, eight, uh, uh, in the 800s there was a major division of the uh, Roman Empire and the eastern leg uh, was in, was in uh, Constantinople and the western leg was in Rome and then the Constantinople one was taken over by the Byzantines who lost it to the Islamics. And so what you're seeing is the eastern leg of Islam trying to bind its way into Europe and you're seeing it overrun. You're watching the iron and clay of the European Union right now. You're seeing these things happen. Amen. And so he said, this is what you saw. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream is in chapter number two. Chapter number two is basically a uh, skeleton of the overview plan of God. And uh, so in the plan of God that he gives to Daniel, to, this is a vision that Nebuchadnezzar the Gentile king gets. He views it as valuable gold and silver. Gentile rule sees themselves as strong. They see themselves as, as something of value and strength. We'll see in a moment that that's not how God sees them. But that's the vision that is given to them. And so uh, we find Daniel gets this dream early in the Babylonian captivity of Israel. And in it, through the book of Revelation, or through the book of Daniel, you're going to find the overview of the entire time. You're going to have information about the tribulation period. You're going to have information about the Antichrist kingdom that is going to come. And it is here when Babylon takes over Israel that the times of the Gentiles began. 
In the book of Luke, he talks about Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You say, was this the first Gentile kingdoms? Oh, no. There had been the Assyrians before the Babylonians. Before that, you had Egyptian kingdom, and the Egyptian kingdom was even in power at that time. And then uh, uh, you had before that, uh, you had Assyria. Before that, you had the Summer kingdom. Before that was Sumer. Before that was Babel. You've had a lot of Gentile kingdoms. So why does the Bible say that the Gentiles of the Gentiles begin here? Because everything revolves around Israel. This is the first time since the temple was established in Israel that the Gentiles have destroyed the temple and are trampling under their foot Israel. I'm here to tell you the Gentiles are still trampling under their foot Israel. You say, when will it happen? Well, it's going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon is what it's going to happen. That's when it comes to an end. And so we're living in the times of the Gentiles. There are times, preacher and I was talking a little bit today about it. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, the age of grace is always, but you've always been saved by grace. And so sometimes you hear the terminology, the age of grace, and then you hear the terminology, the times of the Gentiles, and, and sometimes you hear the terminology of the church age. Uh, and sometimes we get to thinking they're all, all the same. No, they're not all the same. They're distinctly different, uh, though they may overlap and run congruently together, they are each a little different in their nature and purpose. And so uh, uh, we have the church age here because of, uh, of, G of the rejection of, of Christ by the Jews, and you know that. And we're the, we've had about 2,000 years of the church age. One of these days we're going to be out of here, amen? Oh, I'm ready for that. Well, let's look at chapter number 3. Chapter number 3 is all about the fire furnace, and you're looking at the ruins of the fiery furnace. Good friend of mine, archaeologist, uh, Ron Charles, he, uh, he was asked, uh, he's a robe scholar, he's a, uh, got brains out his ear. By the way, he's an independent Baptist preacher too. <laughs> Amazing. Anyway, he's a great guy and uh, he has been asked, he's, he's done work in Egypt at the uh, uh, at the storage bins that Joseph built, and uh, he's been been all over the world in Armenia at some of the discoveries. It's, uh, he, he's uh, well known, and he's been able to go behind the lines in countries where you couldn't go uh, as an archaeologist to verify and do work. And always when he's there, he's sharing the gospel. And amazing stories. This is a picture he brought back of the fiery furnace. The fire furnace was a unique place. Uh, uh, the fire furnace is where they were baking special bricks. It's out on the plain of Dura, which is almost 30 miles outside of where the city sat. There was a wall 30 miles out and another 30 miles or 60 miles beyond that. Uh, there were two great walls all the way around Babylon. It was an impregnable place. You got through the wall out here, you still had another 30 miles, and you had another big wall you faced. And if you got through that, you had another inner side wall just around. I mean, it's an amazing place. And so they were baking these bricks. Many of the bricks that are there are the very bricks that were made by Nebuchadnezzar. They are still standing today. 
You saw the color a moment ago of a turquoise color. What they discovered at the fiery furnace, and by the way, it was Owens Corning many, many years ago that financed the archaeological dig uh, for them to go into Iraq and do the research. You have, remember they used to talk about the spun glass, the fiberglass. You know how they discovered how to make that? By the study of the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace was, uh, was seven chambers. And they had a way to move the brick from chamber to chamber. By the third and fourth chamber, the temperature reached somewhere around 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The seventh chamber was the final cooling down chamber. They found it. It had about eight feet of sand in the bottom of it. And when the Bible says that it was heated up seven times greater, what they were saying is the seventh chamber is heated up because you couldn't have put anybody in the third and fourth chamber. You couldn't even have got close to it, 7,000 degrees. They also discovered that the turquoise color was a very unique one. It's at the fiery furnace that they are making brick not just any brick, but they were making the bricks that were used in the dedication of the false gods. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had two capitals. He had uh, the Euphrates River runs right through the center of Babylon. And there was a bridge that crossed it. The bridge and the road between the two capitals all inside the city was one mile long. Every seventh brick in the floor of the bridge and the road one mile long, every seventh brick was a pure gold brick. And at the end of it, as you walked at the end of that and you got ready to go in and the capital on that side was there, the one on the, west, on the east side was dedicated to Marduk's wife. The one on the east side was dedicated to Marduk. That's Marduk. And uh, these are their false gods and goddesses. And so they built these arches you saw a while ago in the turquoise picture. That's the Isitar gate. And uh, uh, so a gate was nothing more than a big arch. It wasn't a gate with doors on it, but it was a big arch. And each one of these bricks were made at this special killing. So whenever it was time for the music to play, what you were bending and bowing to was not just the music that the king wanted, but it was a submission and a worship to the false gods that the bricks were being dedicated to. So the three Hebrew boys said, I don't know where Daniel was. He was out somewhere in the kingdom, no doubt at the time, in his responsibility, but his three cousins was there. You know the story. They end up getting thrown into the fire into the furnace. And the old king's up on the cliff up above because uh, it's about an 80-foot cliff up above it there. And uh, uh, he's looking down there and he said, wait a minute, how many did we throw in there? Well, I see four. Well, the fourth one looks like the Son of God. Wow. And when they come out, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. <laughs> That's better than some church members. Anyway... <clears throat> You like that, don't you, preacher? <laughs> oh, it's a shame when we have to laugh at the truth. Anyway, okay. Uh, I, you don't have to stop and preach once in a while. Amen. And so 
they didn't worship. They came out with a great testimony. But it began the process of the hatred of these Jews that were in leadership. Because not only was Daniel being elevated, but these men are being elevated in leadership as well. So chapter 3 is all about the worship of false gods that held sway over Babylon. Then you come to the chapter number 4. The fourth chapter is where you learn how to count prophetic time. Chapter 4 is going to give you a physical illustration of how to count prophetic time. The weeks are not just going to be a week of seven days, but a week is a set of seven, seven years. And in order to illustrate it, you know the story. Old Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. The tree is a picture of his kingdom. Trees are always symbolic of kingdoms. And so the kingdom is laid over, but a band is put around the stump, and seven times pass over. Seven years later, after living like a wild person, all of a sudden, he looks up and he said, you're right, God. And his kingdom was restored to him. So chapter 4 gives us a physical illustration and an understanding of how to count prophetic time. A week is actually a set of seven years, not just seven days. And so uh, chapter number five and chapter six are events that happen in the end of captivity. I know they're over here, but they are actually stories that happen toward the end of the captivity. Chapter number five, you find the record of the end of the Babylonian kingdom. Because chapter 5 tells you all about Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, Belteshazzar, uh, yeah, Belteshazzar's actions. And he brings some of the things that was brought out of the temple and, and they're going to have a party. You know the story. And there's writing on the wall. There's a hand back there. Oh my, what does meeny, meeny, particle mean? Anybody know? Hey, why don't you call Daniel? He always knows how to figure these things out. And Daniel come and he said, yeah, here's what it means, king. You've been waiting to balance and you've been found wanting. Tonight is your last night. So in chapter number five, it is at the end of the Babylonian era and the Persians and the Medes are getting ready to take over. And then chapter number six, you have the story of the lion's den. This as at the end of captivity. This is after Darius is the king, the Persian king. And so it really, this, these two chapters are later in the life of Daniel. They're at the end of, Daniel is about an 80-year-old man when he's put in the, in the Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, <clears throat> here are the foundations of the lion's dens. It has been said that the den of the lions was about the size of a football field. Over a thousand lions were stored Lions were used in their battle. So when they got ready to go out to the battlefield, they caged up their lions. They took them out to the battlefield. And when the battle was getting ready, they turned their lions loose. And the lions went ahead of the army that come behind them. And the lions took out the horses and many of the people. 
The story of Daniel in the lion's den, we, we all learned them in Sunday school, and it's a great story, but there's a whole lot more to the story than just there. And so uh, this is what you find in that chapter. And then you come to chapter number seven, and now you're going to get God's view. Chapter number seven and chapter number two are the same thing, except in chapter number two, it's man's evaluation of Gentile rule. But in chapter number 7, God is going to give you His evaluation of Gentile rule. And so in it, He's going to see Babylon like a lion with its wings. And then He's going to see instead of the silver, He's going to see a bear. And this bear's uh, uh, going to be walking lopsided. And, uh, and then He's going to, uh, he's going to see uh, the leopard. Uh, and the leopard's got four wings. And then He's going to see a great beast, a terrible beast. And then He's going to later fill in more information. And so what He's seeing is He sees Babylon. Then He sees the Medo-Persians. The reason the bear's walking lopsided is because the Persians are, are more strong than the Medes. You say, well, who are the Medes? Today you don't call them the Medes. Today you call them Kurds. The Kurds of the Middle East are your Bible Medes. So anytime you hear anything about the Kurds, uh, you need to understand, and when you read about it, and by the way, there is prophecy concerning the Medes, uh, I mean concerning the Medes, uh, which is none other than the modern day Kurds, there's prophecy for them in the final days of the final destruction of Babylon in the latter days of the tribulation period. They've got hope. Did you realize the Kurds today in Kurdistan uh, they are a nation of people. They have their own army. <clears throat> they have their own civil government. But they do not own their own territory. They're in the five different nations. They're the only people group, almost 30 million Kurds, with their own civil government, their own army, without their own borders. Amazing. But the Kurds of today are the Bible Medes. So you say, well, why has the bear got three, three uh, ribs in his mouth? Because it took the Medes and the Persians three campaigns to destroy and defeat the Babylonians. And so the Lord's giving this information to him. This is the Greek Empire. You say, why has it got four wings? Because he did not have any children. Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided up among his four generals. And uh, in chapter 11, you'll get the information that goes with all of that. And then, of course, this is Rome, and also in its final days in the future, the Antichrist kingdom. Uh, chapter 11 will give you more information there. And so each one of these chapters is another layer on top of chapter 2, giving you more information to go with the entire picture. And uh, then you chapter number 8, you get information about these kingdoms and uh, each one of them line up. Your pastor will have this. We'll not take time, but it'll help you in your study of your own to see the picture. Then you get to chapters 11 and 12 and you get more information, particularly about the era of time between the Old and the New Testament, 400 years between them. And the, and the major things that are going to happen 
including the, uh, including the uh, offering of the pig on an altar uh, by Phineas, the, uh, the general uh, of uh, Alexander the Great. All of it is laid out in chapter 11. And chapter 12 gives you information about the millennial reign. Uh, it's, it's a great study. And uh, so uh, <clears throat> this is the chapters. Now, let's back up. Uh, well, one more here. Chapter number 12 is basically about the millennial reign. And uh, that's what the Jews are looking forward to. Amen. Chapter number 9 stands out from all of the rest. Almost everything you've looked at in the book of Daniel has something to do with Gentile kingdoms. Chapter 9 is all about the Jews. It comes at the end of 70 years. Daniel has done some searching of the writing of Jeremiah. And he realizes that it's been prophesied 70 years. It doesn't take him too long. He's now about 90 and uh, he's, uh, he's in his 90s and it doesn't take him long to do a little calculating. This is year 70. Wow. So he begins asking the Lord what's coming. And uh, so this is where you get the church age. You're going to find that it is squelched between the two breaks of the 490-year prophecy that you'll find in chapter number 9. Chapter number 9 is where God is going to give to Daniel God's plan of the timing for Israel. Let's look at it together. He said, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision of the prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, and then another threescore and two weeks. Uh, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in trouble sometimes. Have you ever read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah? On one occasion, somebody sent Nehemiah a note and, and uh, uh, said, hey, meet us down in the land of Oh No. He said, Oh No, I'm not going down there. You ought to read it sometime. Because there were two decrees that went out. There was the first decree that went out in the beginning of the seven weeks or the first 49 weeks. And then at the end of 49 weeks, uh, you, you come to the story uh, of Nehemiah, and, uh, which is following Ezra's day. And what do you discover? You discover that the, the enemies of the Jews have sent word back to the king and tried to convince him that, hey, they're wanting to rebel against you. But word got back and the king searched out the documents that began it and he said, that's not so. Here's a second document. And that began the next three score and two weeks of time. I mean, history is filled with it. And so uh, <clears throat> this is your first 69 weeks altogether. You got 63 and 7, that's 69. And uh, then you have one more. He said, and after three score and two weeks uh, shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. 
He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. That's the 70th week. So in these four verses, you're given information that covers a 490-year time. It begins by the Persian king's decree. The next Persian king gives the second decree. And at the end of that, the Messiah is going to be cut off. And then you still got one week left. The week the, the Messiah was cut off, that's what you call Palm Sunday. That's when they declared him Hosanna in the highest. Three days later, they put him on the cross. Not for himself, but for others. Amen. And so uh, there's still seven, there's still one week to go. We call it seven years, even though it's only 2,520 days. <clears throat> so Daniel is praying. What's next? We're at the end of 70 years of captivity. You need to study why they're there, because they, they, they fail to follow the law of Shemith. They failed to follow the law of, uh, of return uh, of the Jubilees, and as a result, God collected his 70 years. They failed to have 70 Shemites of laying their land aside, so God collected it. You need to understand, God will get it one way or the other. <laughs> Some people say, well, I don't think I'm going to tithe. Don't worry. God knows how to get it one way or the other. Amen. Oh, yeah. Amen. So, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. Let me ask you a question. Who is Daniel's people? Who's Daniel's people? Speak to me. Israel. What's his holy city? Jerusalem? I thought it was all about the church. I thought it was all about us. You see... This is a prophecy, it's not about us at all. This is a prophecy about Israel. He fulfilled the first 483 years exactly like he said, and I promise you, he will fulfill the last seven exactly like he said he would. We weren't a part of the first, and we won't be a part of the second. If I did not have another prophecy in the Bible but this, to know of the pre-tribulation rapture, this is all I'd need. But I'm telling you, your Bible is filled with many others, as well as illustrations that God has provided for us. And so he said there's six, uh, there are six reasons. He said, first of all, to finish the transgression. Then secondly, to make an end of sins. And thirdly, to make reconciliation for iniquity. You know what Jesus did in his first coming? That's exactly what he did. But he said there's six reasons. He said number four, to bring everlasting righteousness. Then to seal up the vision and the prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Let me ask you, did he establish the kingdom of righteousness? No. But he will in his second coming. Jesus fulfilled the first three in his first coming. He'll fulfill the last three in his second coming. Because he said, I have six things purposed. 
Have you ever wondered why when you get to, to chapter seven, 16 of the book of Revelation and after the seventh vial of wrath is poured out, you'll find the words, it is finished. You know what's finished? This. That's the reference that John is writing when God says it is finished at the last vial of wrath and the tribulation. God said this is for the Jews and for the holy city. And so uh, the purpose of these is to prepare the Jews for the millennial reign. That's what it's all about. They had the offer of the kingdom. The king was present. The preaching of the kingdom was at hand. Here's your king. And they rejected it. That's why the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 14 that when he comes back to get them at the second coming, they'll mourn for him as they're for their firstborn and a nation will be born in a day. Why? Because they'll realize, where did you get those wounds in your hand? He's going to say, I got them in the house of my friends. And they say, oh, we're so sorry. And they'll be saved. That's the ones that make it the one-sixth of the Jews that survived the tribulation period. So uh, there's six purposes for uh, the 490-year prophecy. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. So we've had 69 weeks, 483 years. The church is that gap of time in which we are in. The, uh, the rapture will take place and God will finish that last uh, 70th week. Seventy weeks are determined. Let's count it up. A week is seven days or seven years in prophecy. 360 day years. So 69 weeks or years times 360. It's 173,880 days. Did you realize there was absolutely no reason for the Jews to miss their Messiah? God said, Daniel, did you realize that from 70 A.D. until 1948, did you know the book of Daniel was never read in a synagogue? Because they knew they missed it. The year that Israel in 1948 decided to become a nation again, 400 rabbis was, under, was in the basement under David Ben-Gurion when he announced to the world... We are a nation again. That night, their scribes began, and they rewrote once again, recopied from their ancient Torahs. They began writing the first time in almost 2,000 years a new copy of the book of Daniel. Visit our museum. You can see it. One week, seven years remains. Set of 242 months still remain. That's what we call the tribulation days. In March the 5th, 440 B.C., the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to March 30, uh, 33 A.D., the triumphal entry of Christ was exactly 173,880 days. You reckon God knows how to count time? You say, well, the Jewish calendar, uh, by prophecy, 173, but the uh, Gregorian calendar or the Julian calendar, of course, Gregory tampered with it. And so 
uh, you add it up and you say it's only 173,740 days. So evidently it's really not correct. But you got to remember, you got to add the leap days to it. And you got to add the days between. And no matter which calendar you use, you discover God said from the day a decree is made to rebuild Jerusalem, 173,880 days later, your prince will be there. No reason for them to have missed it. I can see why that when the birth took place, they had to search the scriptures to find out where. You know the story as the wise men visit, uh, which is 23, uh, uh, 21 to 24 months after the birth of Christ. Uh, they show up and they have to search. The they may have missed that, but there was no reason to miss him when he presented himself. None whatsoever. And uh, uh, it's amazing. And so you have the 173,880 days. Uh, Christ is cut off. Uh, you have the dysphoria of the Jews, especially after 70 ADs, scattered in the world. Uh, and then in 1948, they become a nation again. All of this is underneath the church age. When the rapture takes place, the last seven years and the total 490-year prophecy will be finished. That's what it's all about. He said in chapter, in verse 26, and after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, not for himself, but now notice, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end the war and desolation. The prince that shall come is talking about the Antichrist. He will be of the people that destroyed the temple. I know there are a lot of people trying to convince you that the Antichrist will be an Islamic person. I think they've failed to look at a couple of passages in the Bible that's very clear that the Antichrist is coming out of the people that destroyed the temple. Titus, who's the head general, and he has three other generals with him. There are four generals uh, in charge of the Fifth Roman Legion. And the Fifth Roman Legion are conscripted troops. In the Roman world in those days, uh, when you conquered a land, all of the men that were fighting age 16 or 17 and up uh, were conscripted into the Roman army. You were told if you served and survived in the battles, uh, if you survived 10 years service uh, in the service of the Roman Empire, you would be given Roman citizenship. Underneath the guiding of in the 5th Roman Legion, these were all Assyrian troops. That's why I think you find often three different times the Antichrist referred to as the Assyrian. And so he's of that people. But it was the Romans that were responsible. And I'm convinced the Antichrist is coming out of the Roman world. I think we're watching that develop today. Um, I could tell you who I think it might be, but it's an irrelevant factor. What's going to happen in that seven-year period of time is all of this judgment. That's the, that's the 70th week of Daniel right there. Chapter 6 through chapter number 16 of the book of Revelation. And uh, it's coming. So what you have is you have the 483 years here. And then you've got the church age, and then you've got the final seven years over here. We're there. We'll not take time to look at that chart. And uh, I want to give you this as I'm closing. 
four ways that people look at prophecy. In particular, what we call end-time prophecy. Prophecy that we find unyet fulfilled, particularly the book of Revelation. There are four major ways that people view prophecy. First of all, you have the idealist view. The idealists say that your Bible is allegorical. Adam and Eve weren't really an Adam and Eve. They were just representative of the first human beings. And uh, everything in your Bible is an allegory. It's just a picture and a type. It's really not necessarily real or literal, but it's just figuratively used. Well, I don't agree with that at all. And uh, then you have the, pe uh, the preterist view. These are the ones that claim that everything in prophecy, and in particular in the book of Revelation, were already fulfilled in history past uh, and were fulfilled primarily by 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. These are called preterists. And then you have the historist view. They view everything, particularly in Revelation, they, they view all of that as something that has unfolded throughout all of time, and it's not really literal future. And then you have the fourth view is a futurist view, and that is that the greater majority, particularly in the book of Revelation, is yet future to be fulfilled. Your pastor and I are in that category. And I'm convinced of it uh, for many reasons. So here are some of the ways that people in those categories view it. Uh, they believe you and I are right here. I hope you're with us tonight. Uh, that before the rapture and the wrath of God begins, uh, it's a pre-tribulation. Then others in the middle, others here, 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 and all over the place. Did you realize that it has only been in this era of time? There have all, in the first two uh, phases of the church, uh, you find that it was always pre-millennial, pre-trib. Then you began to have amillennialism, and then you came up with post-millennialism, and in the last era of time, the Philadelphian era of time, the evangelistic era of the church age, everybody went back to the roots of pre-millennial, pre-tribulation. But in this Laodicean world in which we live, they are all over the map. Let's just stay with the map of the book. Amen? And uh, so the birth pains of the end times are everywhere you look, folks. No matter where you are, before the seven years uh, uh, that, that remain are fulfilled, something has to happen. Amen? We've got to be taken out of the way. So God can finish. One of the seven reasons I have in my book on the seven reasons for the rapture is God needs to move you and I into heaven so he can finish prophecy. He can't finish it until he moves the church out of the way. Man, I'm ready to go. Amen, amen. The question is tonight, are you ready? I hope you're ready. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved, you need to understand God loves you with all of his heart sent His only begotten Son to Calvary's cross. God doesn't send anybody to hell. You're born headed to hell. God sent His Son to Calvary's cross so you'd have a way not to go to hell. But it becomes your choice. Nobody can make this choice for you. 
You have to make your own choice. While you're living in time, that's why the Bible says, now is the accepted time, today is the day of salvation. It's while your eternal soul is living in the realm of time that you have an opportunity to access redemption and change your destiny from hell to heaven. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed as the pastor's preparing for the invitation tonight. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved, please don't leave tonight without knowing.